0: Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoyed it. When our kids both were getting ready to go off to college, I had a conversation with them. And it was different with each kid because Bennett and Morgan are, are really different. And so. Um, the one with Bennett was a little more straightforward. Uh, Morgan, Morgan was kind of already mature enough to not have to go through some of the discussion. But with Bennett, uh, I told him, Son, you've lived under our rules at our house now for 18 years. Was he 18 at the time or 17? He was 17. God, wow. Anyway, so Bennett, you've lived under our rules at our house for 17 years, and you've obeyed those rules because they were the house rules and because we made you. You're getting ready to go off and create your own rules. Now, we hope that we've done a good enough job in your your upbringing and in and in pouring into you spiritually that you're going to make decisions based on your relationship with Christ and not on the things that the world says is okay or what's normal for a college student. But we are no longer the ones that can tell you to do that. You have to to create that yourself. It's got to be you because if you don't, if they're not something that you come up with internally, if this not... Pouring out of your relationship with God Then you're just going to be blindly obe- obeying our rules Or you're just going to be kind of obeying the rules of the world And either way, you're really not the one setting those And certainly Christ isn't the one setting those And so you need to, you need to kind of do that on your own now But just remember that whatever boundaries you put up in your life if they aren't Christ-centered, five years down the road, you're going to have all sorts of things that you regret, and you're going to have all sorts of things that you've invited into your life that you don't want there anymore. And so as you do that, you need to think about where do I want to be five and ten years from now? What does my life need to look like? What do I not want to have attached to me or being pulled around like chains and so I had that conversation with him and, and Bennett understood it and he went about setting those not always the way I would have him do it but he went about setting those things and trying to figure that out on his own but what that led to is a much deeper faith one that he owned one that wasn't exterior, one that wasn't just kind of a veneer put on by the house that he grew up in and by the parents that he had. He had to own it himself. And so today we're going to look at this next part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about this kind of thing. If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew five seventeen through 20. Uh, I want to stop here for a second and say that the, uh, you got it? Okay, because this isn't working. Okay, it's doing all sorts of wacky white blinking stuff. All right. So, thank you, by the way, Seth, you're awesome. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. This is Jesus, remember, the Sermon on the Mount. His disciples were the ones he was training and there were these other crowds that had kind of gathered around, but it was really, this was really a message to his disciples. And this is what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot here, and it's really four different teachings or four different sayings that are combined in one unit. And it's brilliant when you see not only how they are connected, but what the bottom line message is. Let's start with verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this first verse is important because he kind of sets the stage for what's going to follow. The last verse is important. Because it's the title not only for what goes before, not only verse 17, 18, and 19 is kind of back-titled at verse 20. But verse 20 becomes the title for everything that follows after that in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus here is leading up to his main point that's going to be the overarching theme for all of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 20. But he starts with saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill And it doesn't just say the law, but the law and the prophets. So let's talk about this idea of abolish and the idea of fulfill. Now, there's three words we're going to really kind of focus on today, and one is fulfill, one is righteousness, and one is this idea of kingdom of heaven. All right, so the first, abolish. This word abolish doesn't mean to do away with as much as it means to totally deconstruct, to totally tear it down. It comes from the root word that means to untie like you untie a rope, and you let something drift away, or you untie a sandal, and it becomes no good anymore. It's not fit to your foot. It's doing away with completely. It also has the idea of literally deconstructing a building, taking it down brick by brick, stone by stone. So Jesus is saying, I did not come to tear down the law and the prophets. I didn't come to totally do away with them and to make them useless. That's not what I've come to do I've come instead to fulfill so what does this word fulfill mean? so when I was younger and I read this I thought it meant that he came to obey the laws and the prophets right to fulfill in essence means to obey he came to do the obedience for us because we couldn't do it he came to be obedient because the people of Israel couldn't be obedient themselves. And so this idea, in my mind, was that Jesus came to be obedient in our place. Now there's a tinge of that, but that's not what this means. To fulfill means to complete, to bring to fruition, to have it all culminate. So if you take that in mind, what he's saying is, I didn't come to do away with the law and prophets. I came to fulfill them, to not just accomplish them, but to bring them to fruition. Another way of saying this is Jesus is saying, all the law and the prophets pointed to me. You get that? All of the law and prophets, it all set the stage for me. I'm, I'm the last word. Now, we talked about this in, in our, uh, our sermon series on Hebrews, how Jesus said that, that it all culminates in me. I'm, I'm the last word from God. You had the law and the prophets, but now you have me. And it's kind of that same idea here. Jesus is saying that all the laws, all the prophets, they all point to me. And I've come as the culmination of those things, I've come to bring all of that into fruition. I've come as the final verdict, the fulfillment of all that the Law and Prophets pointed to. So that's important for us to understand because the Law and the Prophets set the stage for the Messiah. The Law and the Prophets made it possible for Jesus to show up and to be the fulfillment of them. But it also means... There is a tinge of the idea that he came and he did fulfill all of them by being obedient. So he is the culmination of all the law and prophets. He was what the law and the prophets pointed to. But then he came and actually was able to accomplish them, to live them out. That his righteousness was greater than any other righteousness that had ever been. Then he goes on in verse 18 and 19 to seem to contradict himself a little bit. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. An iota is the smallest, it's the smallest uh, stroke, symbol stroke in Greek. So the smallest stroke of a pen. And then a dot was used uh, for, for uh, vowel points in Hebrew. So what he's saying is that not the smallest stroke of a pen and all of it is written in the law and prophets will pass away. None of it will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, that seems weird, right? It's not going to pass away till heaven and earth pass away, which is their way of saying until hell freezes over. Like, this isn't happen. I mean, that's, seriously, that's the translation that some people use here. That, like, it will not happen. There is no way. So when he says until heaven and earth pass away, he's saying it will never pass away. There's nothing that will be removed from the law. Not the smallest pinstroke stroke will be removed from the law. And then he says until all is accomplished. And then he goes on and says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these. Now what's interesting about this is this word relax is the root word for the word abolish. It means to untie. So he's using the phrase again here, using a root word for a word he used twice before. And he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this seems really wildly contradictory to what he said about, he didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill him. And if he was the one that was the fulfillment then it has come to fruition, then we don't have to worry about all the law and the prophets, or that's what it looks like. But then he turns around and says, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm the fulfillment, but I'm not removing the laws. And if you teach someone that they don't count anymore, that's, that's not, you misheard what I'm saying. Now, the reason why this is important, because there was understandings in Jesus' time, and not long after him, when Christianity was, was young and was growing, there was this idea that if Jesus fulfilled it all, it doesn't matter what I do. If he's taken all on all, all my sin, I can just go on and I can be the chief of sinners, and it doesn't matter because he's already taken it all. Woohoo! good time. And there was this idea that if you abolish or you fulfill the law, and you don't have to obey them anymore, then you can live however you want. And Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm telling you I'm the fulfillment, but that doesn't mean they go away. But it also doesn't mean that we're stuck in this situation where we have to watch the food laws. I mean, how many of you have had how many of you have had pork this week? Well, you're a sinner. I mean, according to the Old Testament law, how many of you have called someone a, a fool or an idiot? All right. <laughs> Was she talking about you, Billy, when she did that? Okay, well, I mean, oh, oh, never mind. So, <laughs> yeah, we've all driven this week. That's exactly right. Then, then, I mean, we're in danger of hell fire, right? So, so if, we, if we say that we have to obey all these laws, then we're all doing it wrong. So that's obviously not what Jesus meant either when he says these, what he says here in verse 18 and 19. So he says, I've fulfilled the law, but I haven't come to abolish it. I've fulfilled the law, I'm the culmination of all of it, but I'm not wiping it away as if it's not important. Then he goes on to say, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven and there it is, the key to understanding what he's trying to get at. The key that's going to set up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who are the scribes and Pharisees? We had this conversation the other night in our community group, and and I've realized recently that there's kind of some confusion about who they are. So, does anybody know the scribes and Pharisees? Who are they? Well, yeah. so, sort of. So, scribes were academicians, right? So, they were scholars. They were the ones who kept the law, like, literally wrote it out and rewrote it out. And they would write down new laws. But they were, they were, the, they were the professors. They were the academia. The scribes were the smart people. We've got a couple of professors in here, and we've got some teachers in here. You are the smart people, and we're the sorry people. Does anybody know what a reference that is? To? <laughs> My family does. Bacon's good for me. Does that ring a bell? Okay, all right, never mind. Go look it up. So the scribes were the smart academy, most brilliant people. In their culture and they were the ones that would argue the law they were the ones that would define things and say no this is exactly what this means they were very academic the Pharisees were a group of people that kind of bought into this um, it, it was a subsection of, of Judaism in their leadership that was stringent about obeying every law like they would go through and because they were so concerned about being obedient with every law, they worked hand-in-hand with the scribes, and they would say, okay, well, if the law says this, we don't even want to get close to that, so let's, let's write a law or let's come up with a, a pattern of behavior that prevents us from even getting close to that sin. And so they created law after law after law that would kind of set the way they lived, and it became very stringent and very harsh. And so the Pharisees... With this group of people that came from the school of thought that I'm going to create more laws so that I don't even come close to breaking the law that's in Scripture. Does that make sense? So in essence, what he's saying is, unless your faith or your righteousness, I'm sorry, unless your righteousness exceeds the brilliant scribes and the absolutely do-no-wrong Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that sounds, pretty de- that's, that sounds pretty damning. Like, there's no way that we can be that smart and that we can be that good. And so when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's not, it's not about the doing of the law that he's talking about. Jesus isn't saying that you have to do no wrong all the time, or you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Because that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees tried to do no wrong. They created law after law after law, so they would never even come close to doing wrong. They were as perfect as a human could be, according to the Old Testament law. So when Jesus says, unless you're better than them, unless your righteousness exceeds them, he's not talking about doing the right things, because none of us could do that. So what does he mean when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, he goes on to explain what righteousness really looks like and all of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but we've already got some of that from the beginning in the Beatitudes. And what it comes down to is righteousness is, is twofold. First off, Jesus fulfilled the righteousness that we couldn't achieve. and that's important because Jesus himself was righteous because he did everything perfectly and we can't he took on our sin at the cross so that our sin became his sin and his righteousness becomes our righteousness he trades places with us make sense? A lot of grace so that is righteousness that God chooses to put on us because Jesus was completely righteous. He looks at it and says, you know what? You're a sinner. Jesus is perfect. But Jesus is taking the sin, and he's giving you his righteousness. So when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see the sin. That's imputed Righteousness, that's the fancy theological word for it, imputed. He takes Christ's righteousness and puts it on you. But it's not just imputed, it's also imparted. So God not only says, I'm going to put Jesus's righteousness on you, then I'm going to give you his spirit in order for you to be able to live righteous when you weren't able to before. And all the places that you're incapable of doing it, the Holy Spirit fills that in. So when he talks about righteousness here, and we know this, I, I don't have time to look in, uh, to do the deep dive here, but if you follow the string of Matthew and all the rest of the teachings of Matthew, and if you look at Old Testament and New Testament teachings about this, this is where this idea comes from. So when Jesus talks about righteousness here, he's saying that it's not about the veneer of doing the right things, it's about, is Christ in you? Like, is His life, His Spirit, in you? It's not about surface doing all the right things. He even tells a parable about this with the prodigal son. Right? The story really isn't about the son who goes away. I don't know if you knew that. The story's really about the son who stays. Because the son who stays, just like the son who left, mistreats the father. But the son, the son who stays says, I've done everything you told me to do. I've been the perfect son. You've given me a task. I've done it. I've never left. I've been right here by your side. I, I'm, I'm perfect. And you've never thrown me a celebration. You've never put fine clothes on me. You've never given me your signet ring. But the reason why the older son in that story was doing it was because it was just a veneer. It wasn't really in his heart. He was just doing it to gain favor favor with the Father. And that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were all doing. They were living their faith to gain favor. Instead, faith isn't a veneer. It's something that comes from within. Righteousness isn't a veneer that you put on. It's not clothes that you just put on in the morning. It comes from within you. So righteousness, in Jesus' eyes, isn't what you do. It's who you are. And unless His Spirit is in you, unless Righteousness isn't something that wells up from in, within you. All the do-goodism doesn't get you anywhere. So works doesn't lead to faith. Faith leads to good works. For I tell you, unless your righteousness is different than and exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we've talked about full. We've talked about righteousness, now we need to talk about this kingdom of heaven. In Matthew, every time he talks about the kingdom of heaven, it's not a place. I've said this multiple times here at the Grove. What does the kingdom of heaven mean? It's not heaven. It's not some ethereal heaven that's off there somewhere. What does the kingdom of heaven mean? Anywhere that God reigns. Yeah, it's anywhere that God's rule is enacted. His kingdom is anywhere where someone subjects themselves to Him. A king has to have subjects, and a kingdom is anywhere that king has subjects living and working. So the kingdom of God is anywhere, as His subjects that we are submitting ourselves to the Lordship and the rule and the reign of Christ. And when we submit to Him, His righteousness begins to well up in us. His Holy Spirit comes and infuses us and gives us life and movement and ability. And then we begin to be obedient, not because we're trying to cover over something, not as some veneer that we add on at the end, not clothes that we put on in the morning, it wells up from the depths of who we are because we've submitted ourselves to the rule and the reign of God. And when we are in His subjects and He is in us, we begin to live out of righteousness. Does that make sense, guys? And that's what Jesus is saying here to His disciples. Think about it. These guys like are like the lowest of the low in their, in their communities. These people aren't... They're not the smart. They're the sorry people. They think bacon is good for them. They're the ones. No, actually, they didn't. (laughs) They did not think bacon was good for them. They hated bacon. Never tasted bacon. But they were the lowly. And he's saying, no, follow me, and I'm going to make you greater than the scribes and the Pharisees not because of what you do but because of who you are not because you achieve something but because my reign and my rule is in you and it's pouring out of you for I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven and so guys our job is not to do good, but it's to submit ourselves to the reign of God. And when we do that, we will live lives of struggling obedience. <laughs> there will be ups and downs. There will t- be times where it just becomes second nature and times where it's a struggle to be obedient. But the promise is that His Spirit and His rule and His reign is in us and gives us the ability to live as he created us to live. And so my words to Bennett are the same words of Jesus to us. It's not about the rules. You have to come up with how you're going to choose to live. But if you want to live for me, Jesus says, if you want to live for God, then you've got to submit yourself and you got to open yourself up to the work of His Spirit in you. You've got to say, God, rule my life. And only then will we live as we were created to live. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.